<laughs> hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Ryan McGuigan from the uh, Renewed Life podcast. I want to welcome you all back. And, and today I have a really interesting guest. Uh, he's the funniest guy that I've uh, interviewed so far. At least oh. we hope that he is. And uh, today we have the privilege of talking to Frank King. And Frank King is known as the mental health comedian. Uh, Frank's not only uh, a typical comedian, he combines the art of comedy with a profound mission to promote mental health awareness and suicide prevention as well as self-harm. With a background as an 11-time TEDx speaker on mental health, a clever stand-up comedian, and a warrior in his own lifelong battle with depression and thoughts of suicide, Frank delivers captivating content, packed presentations that inspire, inform, and entertain. He shows us that conversations about mental health can be engaging, relatable, life-saving, and sometimes they can even be funny. Get ready for an insightful and enlightening conversation with Frank King. Frank, welcome to the program. I appreciate having you. Oh, my pleasure for everybody watching. Um, I'm in my mobile unit, uh, and you can probably see the, the uh, metal grate there behind the back seats. Um, they asked me off the air, you have dogs? I go, no, I transport prisoners for the county. It's kind of a <laughs> you know Uber ex-con kind of a thing. Um, you're the um you're you're the Elmore Leonard character of comedians. Yeah. <laughs> the Marshall <laughs> Marshall Raylan Givings. Um, uh, so tell them that. Oh dear God! Yeah, that's a good show. That's a good show. That's a good show. I am I'm a big Elmore Leonard fan, and uh, I'm also a writer. I uh, I I write for uh, a television show that's executive produced by Terrence Winter, and he wrote uh, Boardwalk Empire. And one of my favorite authors to to read just for fun is is Elmore Leonard, and I love all of his characters, especially Raylan Givens. And um, Timothy Oliphant does a wonderful job with that character, and uh, that's, a, that's a really good show. Uh, how do you end up transporting people, or, or do you transport them for the sheriff's department? No, I, we just have a couple of German shepherds, and it's our dog car. No, it's just <laughs> all right. I got. I forgot you're a comedian, and and you're pulling my leg. But um, so why don't you let us know what what is what's so funny about suicide? Uh, actually, nothing to joke about, but funny personal no. anecdotes. Um, yeah, I tell the audience, um, you know, I came close enough to killing myself. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Pause. Spoiler alert: I did not pull the trigger, which gets a nervous laugh. And then I go, you know, a friend of mine came up after a keynote recently and said, "Hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger?" I said, "Hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed?" That's where the funny is. When I did my TEDx, my first one, I said to the audience, I researched it. I figured I'd go to TEDx and see how other people handle this topic. Figured there'd be dozens of TEDx talks on suicide. There were three. And then it, re then it hit me. I said to them, oh, well, duh. If you're really good at suicide, you're not going to be recording a TEDx. So that's where the humor comes in. Funny personal anecdotes. Did, did you start off as a comedian and then uh, you, you, you found this topic or, or did this topic lead you into comedy? Uh, I started off as a comic the day after Christmas, 1985. Yep. Uh, I saw my girlfriend in December of 85. I'm going on the road to become a stand-up comic professionally. Would you like to come along just for the ride? Figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we gave up our apartment and our jobs, stuffed everything in storage we couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. She and I were on the road together, 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, seven years in China. Wow. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And then I always wanted to make a living and a difference, and I couldn't figure out how. 
until well, until I came close to killing myself. In April 2010, after filing Chapter 7 in bankruptcy, um, my wife was devastated. I thought, I can fix this. I've got a million-dollar life insurance policy. I'll kill myself, and she'll get a million dollars. She'll be heartbroken, but she won't be broke. Problem was, I hadn't had the policy two years, and there's a two-year suicide clause. I had to wait 60 days to kill myself. So that's why I'm sitting here right now. Um, and then after that happened... I, I wanted to speak. I wanted to be a funny, not a funny speaker, but a speaker who was funny. So a friend of mine, Judy Carter, wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And she gave me a copy of the book and said, read it, you'll figure it out. Went into it thinking I got nothing. Halfway through, I realized, oh my Lord, I do have something to teach. Because of my near suicide, the fact that I live with two mental illnesses, the fact that there are more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd, I could get some training in suicide prevention and keynote. So I've gotten several certifications in suicide prevention, began keynoting in 2012. In 2014, I decided that was all I was going to talk about. I'm a big believer in when you're speaking, pick a lane or any, right, kind, of, right, right. any kind of entrepreneur. Pick a lane, yeah. become the thought leader expert, pick four to six ideal clients, not everybody, just as Seth Godin says, smallest viable number of people that you, with which you can reach your financial goals. So I picked the top six at-risk occupations for suicide, and that's all I've done. And then I did the TEDx to prove to people after two and a half decades of stand-up that I could do something serious. And so I came out on stage at age 52 at that TEDx as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew that. My friends, my family, and my wife didn't even know. So that proved to everybody I was able to do something serious with, you know, well-placed, organic, tasteful humor right my my grandmother killed herself with an old gas stove my great aunt with an old lock type refrigerator i said to the wow. audience what is it with my family and major appliances i drive past home depot i tear up <laughs> with, with with my family is driving past every uh, every bar that's got a shamrock on the outside of it <laughs> <laughs> because uh we, we we've had uh we've had a couple of well we're all catholics so we don't commit suicide. We clean our guns and things go bang. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't commit suicide. We, um, we fell off of a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot, of, a lot of people do that at 11 o'clock at night, fall off a bridge. Uh, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't, um, we, we don't, we don't commit suicide. We had a car accident where we drove into a tree at 80 miles an hour and there weren't any skid marks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was an accident, and uh, just just recently, uh, unfortunately, I had a family member that uh, went swimming. Uh, Seventy two years old and didn't come, didn't back. come back. Yeah, and uh, yeah. so there's, and then my my I have my own little sister who uh, had had an accident with with a uh, with a drug, and. Uh, she asphyxiated. Ah. Yeah. yeah, well, in the suicide statistics, last year, 2022, roughly 50,000 people died by suicide, but 119,000 died of a drug. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, mostly opioids or fentanyl. And the uh, problem is you don't know if it was an accidental overdose or a suicide unless they left a note. I usually always tell people that it doesn't really matter. Because, no. um you know, when like for at least for my little sister, um, when you when you take opiates, 
uh, you know, every every one of us got the bulletin that uh, that these things will kill you and they're deadly. Mm-hmm. And this is this is before fentanyl. Um, and so when you when you start abusing those things, uh, you know, everybody knows that it's that that it could be could be your last last day here on Earth. And that's yeah. uh, unfortunately what happened to my sister. She uh, took a pill, thought it was one thing and it had fentanyl in it. And that was it. But I, I just left the funeral uh, last week, and it was an old client of mine that I'd done an intervention for years ago. And uh, I didn't know it, but he had gone back out, and um, he was an alcoholic that used used stimulants to continue his to to uh, help his 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 alcoholism or or to sober him up. And uh, he took uh, just cocaine, and it had fentanyl in it, and he was oh. dead as a doornail. Yep, and, and it's been happening a lot. Uh, at least in Connecticut, I don't know where you guys are, but um, it is uh, it it is it is a, a pandemic up here, like a real pandemic, mm-hmm. and a lot of people are are dying from it. But um, how do you find the um, how, how do you how do you uh, there's there's a delicacy a lot uh, there's well there's there's a lot of people today that that are sensitive to words and language and to what what other people find funny. So how do you find that that kind of balance in between what's what's comedy and and what's serious? And uh, and also, do you do you ever get any groans from an audience or or any of that stuff where where you find out that you might have crossed the line one way or the other? Um, am I able to to uh, use a bad word on your? Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Fuck them. Fuck them all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I did, I was doing a school in Billings, Montana, University of Montana Billings, and these nice two yeah. gentlemen. You know, kids to drive me around town. It was part school show, part public. So I did some radio. I did the NPR station and a couple of, and a commercial radio station. And they asked me, you know, comics on campus nowadays, Frank, really have a hard time because people get the toast yeah. on, you know, this yeah. whole woke thing. I said, well, you know, if I was doing comedy on campus, I'd be very careful. But I'm I'm on campus to save people's lives. So my feeling is, if they get their toast stepped on, fuck them. Um, yeah, I, 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 and I have not had a problem I, in comedy. I be, I did comedy on cruise ships until I guess late last year. And I was beginning to get those groans that I think they were judging. They were judging the jokes, which they didn't used to happen. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad I wouldn't do clubs again, because I just, I can't, you know, back in the day when I started in 84, you didn't like the show. You went to the box office, got your money back. I mean, it, right. It, right. And, and and I did something. Um, I had I got the trolls came after me, and right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it's a, you know, a perceived slight, and one of them called me up. And he goes, "Hey man, we're gonna make sure you never work in a comedy club again." I said, "Can I get that in writing?" <laughs> you promise? Yeah, you promise. So yeah, nobody. Um, I did get busted after a speech one time by a psychologist. He comes up and he goes, hey, man, um, what qualifies you to speak on suicide prevention? You're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or even no master's in social work. I said, well, uh, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And in the silence that followed, I said, look, I can go to college and learn absolutely everything you know. You will never, ever know everything I know. That's what qualifies me. And that, that by the way, I can tell there's 25% of the population has a mental challenge. And when I stand on stage and go, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like, you can see pretty much all 25% lean forward. Like, yeah. this is not academic for him. 
Um, what are not not on, in your stand up, but in your TEDx talks? What are some of the key messages or uh, takeaways, I guess, that you 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 aim to convey in your presentation, uh, in your TEDx presentations? Yeah, and each one's different. Each one's on a different, um, you know, different um, slice of mental health, mental illness. Yeah. Uh, I did one called Mental the Benefits, the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness, because I I kept bumping into people who had a mental challenge, but just had some other extraordinary ability. I, I thought this cannot be a coincidence. I did some research and sure enough, um, certain mental illnesses, I believe my two mental illnesses are just the flip side of my creativity and imagination. Um, there's a reason I, I can teach you to write stand up, do stand up. I can't teach you to process it the way incoming information, the way I do. Uh, and you know, like lightning fast, um, guy on carnival, uh, carnival has a late show. They come for a fight, a verbal fist fight. They're drunk guy in the front row. I didn't even say anything yet. He goes, you suck. Like, <laughs> can't let that go. I just waited a beat and I said, yeah, you fucking swallow. And <laughs> I got a standing ovation. Uh, and somebody said, how'd you think that up? I didn't think it. When you heard it, I heard it. I had no idea where that came from. Uh, right. So there's a reason. So the, whole, the premise of mental benefits is this. And it starts off like this. What if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? What if mental illness is, as Malcolm Gladwell says, of such things in his book, David and Goliath, a desirable disadvantage? You'd never wish it on anybody, but... It comes with certain advantages. And what if we could convince young people that, yes, you have a mental illness, but here's something they probably didn't tell you. You've probably got some mental ableness your peers can't touch. So if we focus on that, we can reduce stigma and bullying and hopefully use suicide if we could wrap our arms around whatever their talent happens to be. So that was the wow. point, really for young people. And I give examples of, um, like, like Kanye West. I mean, politics aside, he is definitely one of the musical geniuses of his generation. Too bad he's yeah. not a public relations genius. But, um, yeah, so it's that. The, there was another one, um, Suicide, the Secret of My Success. Dead man talking. The I got into comedy because I was married and miserable. Wonderful woman. We just didn't belong together. We had nothing in common. Shouldn't have gotten married, but you know what they say. Opposites I've been there. I've been there. Um, the uh, selling insurance, great business. This wasn't for me, and I was not going to mic night because my wife didn't want me to do comedy. And I'm driving down 163 in San Diego at 5 in the afternoon in January of 84, and the thought crossed my mind, why don't you just kill yourself? And I thought, whoa. My first time I'd had a suicidal thought. My second thought was, I need to change something, otherwise I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later. My third thought, very empowering, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. And I bumped into a number of people who had the same thought process. I think Anthony Bourdain did. I think Kate Spade did. I've got a comic friend who hated her job. Only joy was two nights, open mic nights a week. And she thought, if I don't quit my job and do stand-up, at least try, I'm going to kill myself. So that was the point of that one. My favorite, the only one I ever got a standing ovation for, was called Mental Health and the Orgasm, Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly. <laughs> Yeah, I love my iPhone, but it is my second favorite handheld device. <laughs> I didn't even have to audition for that one. They read the title and subtitle and invited me. <laughs> at, at the end of it, at the end of it, Ryan, my wife told me not to do this joke, but I said it's going to kill him and I close with it. 
I said, do you guys know why they call an orgasm an orgasm? And they're looking at me like, no. And I went, because nobody can spell. <laughs> Standing up. So there you go. So each one has a little different take. <laughs> uh, not to bring it back, back from that funny place, but, but where does suicidal thoughts? Because, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that like when I was lying under a bed with three quarters of a bottle of Jim Beam drank, um, and I kept telling myself, I, I never said I want to die. I, but I did say over and over again, I don't want to wake up. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. Um, and in, go ahead. That's passive suicidality. Wouldn't kill yeah. yourself, but you know, I really wouldn't mind if I didn't wake up. Yeah, yeah. that's that's where I was. That's yeah, that's where I kids, was for a long time. Kids who suffered serious trauma at the hands of their whomever oftentimes pray to God every night. Please take me. Don't let me wake up. Again, wouldn't actively pursue it, but wouldn't be upset if it did, you know, just never woke up. For for someone um, in that situation or someone who has actually, who, who, is, th- who is thinking about um, um, not, not, a, not a passive, but, a, but an active approach to it. In other words, wakes up on a pretty much daily basis and just says, I just could care less and I'd rather just die. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice would you give for a person like that? What co- what kind of resources should they be reaching out to? And I and I don't I, I hear this a lot. This question that people ask: Well, what resources? But I, what what specifically would you tell somebody if you're if they're right in front of you and they're saying, you know, I, I have these thoughts and and in these ideas in my head? Well, it happens to me. Um, I speak when I speak. My job is to start the conversation. And when I go on stage and I'm vulnerable and I talk about my mental illnesses and my near suicide, as a man, men tend not to share those kind of feelings. Yeah. It gives other people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences. I was in Cincinnati. I spoke on a job site, a construction job site. And as often happens, there are people lined up afterwards, half a dozen or more, wanting to share a story or ask questions. The last guy in line, a nice young African-American gentleman, probably mid-20s, when he gets to me, he's crying so hard he can't speak. So I wait. And when he gathers himself, I said, what's up? And he said, well, I haven't slept in two days. I work on the fifth floor of the building. I think about jumping off every day. I said, well, why is that? He goes, well, I've lost three people to suicide, I'm sorry, to violence in the last year, including my daughter who died in my arms. So I waved, uh, the HR guy wasn't standing far away. I waved him over and I said, look, you need to take this gentleman by the hand, go get the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program binder, and you need to take him to a mental health facility right now for simply for evaluation because he's circling the drain. And so a couple of months later, I called the meeting planner back on another issue and I was just, I was terrified to ask what happened. I finally asked, what happened to that nice young man? She goes, Frank, you got evaluated, you got medicated, you're back on the job. So it does come up in real time for me oftentimes like that. Um, do you have any opinions or, or any strong feelings? I'm sure you do. Because uh, you're talking about like with men, that men don't talk about those feelings a lot. I also get from 
from uh, from my my perspective, which is from I'm I'm a criminal defense attorney for 26 years, and I've been doing interventions for my clients, uh, my criminal clients, but also for other people for about um, 15 years. But what what I get a lot from my clients is um, their excuse for not reaching out to me or to other people for help is they believe that if others find out that they have some sort of, of mental disorder or mental health issue, that it's going to have collateral consequences on their lives. In, in other words, uh, their jobs, uh, their relationships, uh, the way that they're viewed within our government, uh, whether or not some of them have. And especially, you know, I, I get guys who are law enforcement people. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I represent a lot of cops. Uh, who come to me and they say, hey, I got a drinking problem. And then they, and they don't want anybody finding out about it. The reason that they particularly hire me to be their interventionist or to be their counselor is because I am an attorney and anything that they tell me is protected. <laughs> oh. So they, they appreciate that. But what a lot of them believe and think, cops especially, is that their pistols will be taken from them. And then they won't be able to they won't be able to do their duty anymore. And then they'll lose their job. You also get a lot of guys who say that, that if they have the pistol permit and whatnot, that that's going to be taken away. So for for a gentleman like that, that's that's situated um, in that particular type of job and whatnot. What advice would you give those guys? Well, and they are correct. Uh, depending on who heads up the department, police department, whoever is the commander on the base. Uh, the, I remember a story about a guy that was a police officer, had a drinking problem. He was suicidal. They, they took his gun away and they put him on 30 days leave, you know, so he has, now he has nothing to do. Um, but think about killing himself. No right, right. offer of mental health treatment. So military, healthcare, um, law enforcement, first responders, all risk, depending on who's in charge. Uh, it could be career limiting or career ending, um, and and there is a stigma attached. There are, um, you know, there are people who won't, you know, once you've once you've come out of suicidal, some people I think think it's contagious, and they, they won't they won't don't want to hang out with you anymore. Um, what I would do is I would seek private treatment, like like with you. I would I would go and I would seek I would pay for it out of my pocket, or if I couldn't pay for it. I would find one of those services in the county that has a sliding scale, and and again, just get an evaluation. Is it is it garden variety depression? Is it the depressive state of the bipolar disorder, which is far more dangerous? Is it schizoaffective? What is exactly is? And I would have a full physical, because every now and then, a physical ailment will present as mental illness symptoms. There's a guy here in town I know who uh, was terribly depressed. Went to the doctor, got a full workup. Turns out his body wasn't processing iron properly. They put him on a slow iron, you know, it's time-released iron mm -hmm. supplement. Boom, depression gone. So right. first of all, physical. Second of all, speak to a mental health professional and find out what the hell is going on. And, of course, 988 is the new three-digit suicide prevention oh, yeah. text line. I mean, and they want to hear from you before you're standing on the ledge. If you're, if you're struggling, call them before you're out on the ledge and about to jump. Um, the good news is, Ryan... Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent, can't make up their mind. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to the attempt, which means uh, you can save, a, you know, um, they want to be saved. They can be saved. You can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as this and starting a conversation, if you know how, because people don't often recognize. Somebody just told me this past week 
um, oh, I was at a SHRM thing, Society of Human Resource Managers. And their call center that services all the SHRM members all over the world uh, got a call, asked for something about their, their re-upping their certification. And he said, well, listen, it's in the computer, but it's not going to show up until Monday. So you're good. It's not going to show up on Monday. So just log back on Monday. And she goes, I'm not going to be here Monday. And that set off alarm bells in his head. And so, long story short, he stepped up. He knew where she was physically. He he uh, he probably did a go by and do a welfare check on her by the local law enforcement, see if she is actively suicidal. Long story short, she's still here because he picked up on that. I'm not going to be here Monday. It wasn't just I'm going on vacation. It's I'm not going to be here Monday. And so. If you know what to listen for and look for, most often it can be, it's one of the most preventable causes of death on the planet. Right. I, I had, I had, I had a, a similar issue as that I, I used to, I used to be a prosecutor myself and uh, I, I have taken so many of my clients through the criminal justice system and gotten them sober and, and they've, um, they've had a successful trip through the criminal justice um, system. And uh, a lot, a lot of them have had long-term sobriety. And um, after many years of doing that, I had uh, one of the prosecutors uh, who reached out to me on a on a Sunday and said that uh, that they were having some some troubles and a lot of troubles with drinking. And um, I had asked, you know, have you had any thoughts of suicide or harming yourself? And you always get the same answer, which is no. Um, but in, in, in my space that I work in, we have a lot of, again, accidental deaths. And, uh, I, I had offered to go out and see her that night and I offered to take her to rehab the next day. And, um, uh, I went to work to go get her the next day. And, uh, they told me that she, that, uh, that the police had, had, had shown up at nine 30 in the morning and she was supposed to go to work. She was supposed to testify in a, in a hearing and, uh, never showed up. And she had taken Xanax along with with uh, the alcohol that she was consuming, and it lowered her blood pressure, and, and then she passed away. And so we get that a lot. Um, and so in those situations, um, you know, we I, do, do you do you think that that there could uh, or that you could? Um, I, I what am I really saying? I I, I guess I'm feeling guilty that I mm. didn't see or hear hear anything in her voice that would have triggered me into thinking that that could be a possibility that next morning, but it certainly was. Yes. And, um, the, well, she may have been the one out of 10 that wasn't going to tell anybody and wasn't ambivalent. Yeah. 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 And I always tell people, go with your gut. If your gut tells you they're circling the drain, send the cops for a welfare check. Now, if they find her actively suicidal, I'm sure you know this, depending on the state you're in, That'll buy you a three-day, wonderful three-day yeah. vacation in a lockdown medical facility without shoestrings or belt. Gonna- in the state of Connecticut, it will buy you a three-day if you voluntarily stay. If you don't voluntarily stay, you'll be brought before a judge after 48 hours, and you'll be giving a hearing, and then you'll be committed for 72 hours. So, ah. uh, yeah, you're, we're usually told you could stay here for three days, or we can make you stay here for five. Well, and what I would do if, uh, in that case is um, if you suspect she's suicidal, but she doesn't admit it. And this is not in the book anywhere. It's not in any course I ever took. It's something a psychiatrist and I came up with. 
is I would say to the person, okay, look, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they flat say no, I say, okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever. Because uh... you wouldn't be having the conversation if there wasn't something that was preventing them at that moment from killing themselves. Oh, that that's very insightful. I never thought about that because it do, does a couple of things that it a would trigger would indicate you know whether or not that there was some sort of impediment in their mind which would be significant enough that they would not do it but also it might be insightful to what's going on in their in their head in other words that they don't think that there's anything worth living for because uh, if you ask me you know why wouldn't you kill yourself i'd say well there's a five-year-old right over there and, <laughs> and that that's why and I yeah. have a really loud—I have a really loud eleven-month-old um, golden retriever, and he's right over there barking. <laughs> so, yeah. But so, yeah, I have. Um, and and generally, what what it really is 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 um, for for myself and my own depression. Uh, I always check in with myself just to make sure that I'm still hopeful. Because uh, whenever anybody asks me, you know, what's the difference between somebody being able to get long-term sobriety and somebody who doesn't, I usually just say, well, it's hope. It's, it's whether or not you hope you have hope that tomorrow will be a better day or that, you know, next year is going to be great or something down the road that you have to look forward to. Because if you don't have any of those things, it's, it's very difficult to, to be hopeful and be cheery and, and, to, and to think about, think about tomorrow. But um, uh, I, you had mentioned um, just a few seconds ago that, uh, and, and this is one of your mantras, that you can make a difference, you can save a life, and often you can do it by starting a conversation. Could you um, just elaborate that, uh, you know, on that and how just having that conversation with people can be impactful and open up um, a, a room to, uh, to, to other people sharing their, their pain and uh, hopefully prevent uh, tragedy? Well, you have to know how to start the conversation. Yeah. And we need to back up, um, back up the, you know, take a little higher level view. First of all, you need to know if they're depressed. And how do you know that? People ask me. Well, not an exhaustive list, but they eat too much or can't eat, sleep too much or can't sleep, have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, so they're often late to work or school, but rallying the afternoon like a different person. They, um, they let their personal hygiene go. Yeah. Stop showering. Yeah, and maybe because they're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, you know, uh, run a little wash, take a shower, um, and so eat, shower. Um, they, I think those are probably the biggest ones, especially visually. If somebody's, you know, usually well put together, but they're just letting it go, then that would be. We tend, a, we tend to see people also who are isolating and not um, joining communities and, uh, and, yes. and not not conversing with others. Yeah. We see a lot of isolation. Three legs of a suicidal stool. One is isolation. You socially isolate Two, you've made the decision. You can cross that barrier and kill yourself because we're born with a will to live. Even infants have a will, you know, a strong will to live. And the third thing is burdensomeness. You feel like the world would be better off without you. your family would be better off without you. I knew my wife, I was worth more dead than alive to my wife. You get a million dollars if I, if the policy had been fully enforced. So what I tell parents is, look, 
if you have a child who's depressed and, and, you know, is thinking of suicide, A, count your blessings that you know that, that they came forward. And B, don't say things like you've got so much to live for, because trust me, as somebody who's suicidal, that doesn't put a dent in it. What I would say to the youngster is, look, I'll bet it crosses your mind every now and then that you are a burden to us and we would be better off without you. I just want you to know, we just want you to know in no uncertain terms, you are not a burden and we would in no way be better off without you. Join the conversation that's happening in the person's head. The thing they're telling themselves, asking themselves. And just random random moments, just say, hey, listen, I know it probably crossed your mind, but you're not a burden and we would in no way be better off without you. Um, with so, with young with young people, um, do you do, uh, with young people that is that a a a um, a common theme that purpose in life and meaning of life um, and lack thereof uh, be, becomes sort of a, a slippery slope to uh, to self harm. Problem I see is that I've been through my cycle is about seventy two hours. I begin cycling down like somebody's turned up the force of gravity. First day, day two, I bought them out. Day three, I'm on my way back up. So it's roughly 72 hours. And I've been through it so many times that I know as it begins, I know three days later, I'm going to be fine. So I can ride it out. But young people, if you haven't been through this cycle, people with depression tend to think in the immediate moment. If it's not going to be better than this, and I don't think it will be, then why bother? That's the danger. Because, I mean, I've been through it so many times. I mean, I have chronic suicidal ideation. My car broke down. I had three thoughts. Get it fixed, buy a new one, I could just kill myself. I mean, it's just a coping mechanism. My brain's always, I had an idea, just kill yourself. Uh, And by the way, when I tell that story out loud about the car, and I I do every time I speak, and almost every time there's been at least one person in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation, and they don't know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak, completely alone. Had a young woman come up up after a college presentation. She goes, thanks for the keynote. You're welcome. She goes, I got to tell you, it made me weep. I didn't make you weep. She goes, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new and kill yourself? I go, yeah. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know that had a name. I thought it was just me and I was some kind of freak and I was all alone. And when I heard you say you have it, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone and I wept. That's the power of starting the conversation. Do you do you have um, do you have like a, a focus group or, or a group that you personally go to for for support? I have never been officially diagnosed nor been to a support group. Okay, I, I wrote I co-wrote four books on men's mental health with with a psychologist, Dr. Sally Spencer, Spencer Thomas, and a woman who's got a master's in social work, um, Sarah Gare, and in in our back and forth as we we're putting the books together. You know, we would talk about my symptoms and they're like, oh, really? Well, that would be major depressive disorder. Oh, that's chronic suicidal ideation. That ha- that's a thing. I didn't know it had a name. Right. I figured, I, you know, I didn't think, I didn't think anybody else thought that way. <coughs> so, and by the way, um, people often say, well, let's take suicide off the table. No, let's not take suicide off the table because that's, that's an out. Hmm. I, as I've said many times, if it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, the fact that I could do it anytime I wanted, I'd have killed myself a long time ago. Because I know it's all about pain, I believe, not so much about wanting to kill yourself. 
And knowing I could end it at any moment, I can stand a great deal more pain because I know I'm in control of it. I can, I can fix this if I want to. So you take suicide off the table, oh, dear God. So just move it to one side. You know? I got you. So it's 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 there. We but we just it's sort of like some just like it, it, it's a gun in the closet. It's 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 there for if you need it, but we're probably yeah. never gonna need it. Gotcha. I figure I'm sitting in the exit row on an airplane in the window seat, and at any point in time, I just pop the, you know, pull the lever out the door, gone. So it's you know it's always so that's very that's comforting actually that I know I can, if I want to. Uh, keep, and it keeps me from killing myself, among other things. Can you share? Um, can Can you share any any any? Uh, well, do Do you have any any stories that you can share about like like that woman who came up to you um, after you you mentioned about the car? Uh, any other stories like that where, where you've had, where you, you opening up the conversation by having the bravery to talk about, you know, what's going on in your own brain, uh, how, how that has, has, has opened up, uh, a a pathway for somebody else to, to, to start that conversation and, 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 and some, um, anecdote where, where you, you went out and, and, and you feel that, that, that somebody probably is still on this earth because of, because of what you've done. Yes, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but I'll get a DM or a text or something. By the way, let me cover the, if they're depressed, you should ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide, as you mentioned earlier? And if they are, here's what you don't say. You're being melodramatic. You're just looking for attention. Nobody who talks about it ever does it. You should say, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed time, place, and method, that's when you need to get them out of the and, you know, if it's not detailed, then you do the, well, are you going to kill yourself? Um, yeah, I, I, did a, I did a military base. It's Fort Irwin. It's in 30 minutes California. north of Arco, California. They call it the world's yeah. longest call. Um, and there were, I did three keynotes, three different sets of soldiers. And the last set, we're doing Q&A. And one of the soldiers raised his hand. He goes, do you think the, the Army's doing enough for mental health? And I said, I can't speak for the Army. But I can speak for Fort Irwin. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. Right. And I said, you know why I'm standing here, soldier? He goes, no. I said, because Fort Irwin gives a shit. Gives a shit about mental health. <laughs> yeah. What I did know was the one star who ran the joint was standing right behind me. So I turned. I see him because he's got a star right here on his chest. And I turned back to the audience and go, anybody besides me just poop your pants when I said that? And he steps up. He's got a microphone and he goes, soldiers, Frank King is correct. Fort Irwin gives a shit. So that tells everybody in that room that it's okay to come forward. And sure enough, that was October, April, a soldier walks into the army based psychologist's office and says, I'm depressed and suicidal. And, and I, I saw Frank King and, and he said, if, if that was the case that I had to come in, that's why I'm here. That is fantastic. That's the little ROI for you. That is fantastic. Frank, I appreciate your time. I have.